You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello and welcome to the RSA Conference podcast. This is Hugh Thompson, Program Committee Chair of RSA Conference, and I am joined today by Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference. Hi, Britta. How are you? I am well, Hugh. Thank you so much um, for being here, and thank you, listeners, as well. I can hardly believe it's, it's already been two weeks since we gathered at RSA Conference 2020, a beautiful week in San Francisco. We've gotten so much great feedback on conference as a whole and the educational offerings, and particularly around the human element theme. It really has just resonated with people in in so many different ways, um, which is great. Today, we're talking with two incredible guests who are extremely well-versed in all things human behavior, as well as cybersecurity. Gentlemen, please introduce yourselves. This is Alexander Stein. I am in New York and very excited to be speaking with you both. Thank you for having Gopal and me on as guests. I'm an expert in human decision-making and behavior, uh, founder of Dulles Advisors, which is a consultancy that specializes in helping organizations detect, mitigate, and resolve challenging human factor disturbances, and a principal in the Boswell Group, which is a psychodynamic management consulting group, and I serve as a confidential advisor to CEOs, senior management teams, and boards addressing complex leadership and culture issues with psychological underpinnings. Hi, this is Gopal Paranjarvito. I'm working for AAA Auto Club Group uh, here in Dearborn, Michigan, as the Chief Information Security Officer. And uh, one of my areas of interest is insider threat, and that's how I met Alexander Stein. And uh, we are looking at creating the next generation cybersecurity programs that addresses the human element in cybersecurity. Great. Thank you both so much. And I, I can tell you, you know, Britta and I are so excited about this topic. Not only did we, uh, did we make the theme of this past year's RSA conference, the human element, but we've been incrementally adding human element content in, I'd say for maybe five years when we started the first track. It seems like the most critical aspect uh, of InfoSec. And, and Gopal, I wanted to ask you, you know, it's fascinating to me that you're a CISO, but you have this incredible partnership with Dr. Stein. It's so interesting to me, at least, to get the backstory of how that came to be and how you guys met and how you decided to collaborate. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that we all know, there's a big shortage of talent in the uh, industry for cybersecurity uh, professionals. And there's an initiative that was started way back five years ago in New York with some banks and the Federal Reserve Board and uh, the academic institutions like uh, SUNY and uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York to get together and create a program that will help make a lot of interest for uh, young kids and students to have a career in cybersecurity. And we chose Insider Threat. We have selected NIST as the underlying framework, and we used Insider Threat as a case study 
so that the students can understand. And because it was inside a thread, Alexander Stein was one of the mentors, and that is how we met. And then when we got to talk to each other, I said, this is a problem that every industry is facing. So let's work on something that together to actually solve this problem. So we met in New York as part of the Cybersecurity uh, Workforce Alliance Initiative. Excellent. Collaboration is, is, is so interesting across our industry. So that sounds like a great partnership. This question is for both of you. And Gopal, I'll start with you. And then, Alexandra, I'd love your thoughts as well. Um, we know that you're not alone in trying to find solutions to the challenges presented by this relationship between humans and technologies. Can you walk us through the arc of your experience and the thinking that drove you to find the particular solutions you have to the problems being faced? Yes, so I'll start with a quote from Bruce Schneier. He said that amateurs attack machines and professional attack human beings. And we have data to show that from the Verizon breach reports for the last 10 years, that 99% of the attacks starts with a human being. So the human is central to the uh, problem of cybersecurity. And when you look at the exponential increase in the technology that is becoming intelligent and connected, the entire world of technology is becoming connected to everything, and it is becoming intelligent, we both Alexandra and I have been thinking about the unintended consequence that happens when the humans and the technology interact with each other. So I think that is the, uh, the arc that got us interested to think about what happens from a risk perspective at the intersection of humans and technology and especially the unintended consequences. The idea of unintended consequences is something that Gopal and I will be referring to a lot. It's central to our perspectives on these issues and helping to address the problem of unintended consequences is a large uh, and looming factor in addressing everything that comes under the umbrella heading of cybersecurity. So my starting point with these issues is that cybersecurity is a human problem which involves technology and not a technology problem to be solved technically. And the implications of that perspective are far-reaching in centralizing and normalizing the human factor uh, in the organization, whether you're dealing with malicious insider threats or negligent insider threats uh, or other externalities that may be causing incidents, understanding how people think or don't think, how and why they behave as they do, how and why they may behave in ways that you don't anticipate or have difficulty controlling, are critical to being able to implement any kind of control system or solution to whatever your problem is, whether it's technical or technological or otherwise. Alexander, I really appreciate that, that perspective. You know, it's it's so interesting. I think it's one of the biggest problems we've struggled with as an industry is these unintended consequences and how do we manage them. A classic one is, you know, we have a very complex password policy, but as a result, people write the password down, put it on a sticky note on the monitor, 
which is a human consequence response to to something that's just not easy or not digestible. And I'm I'm wondering, can you explain to our listeners what the difference is between awareness of an issue, a, a problem, or even even guidance, like hey, you know, don't put a sticky note with your password on the monitor, and true awareness. And how does that relate to a change in human behavior? If you can, if you can just give us your thoughts and insights on that, that'd be terrific. Luckily, we have about eight days for this podcast so that I can actually answer oh God. Oh, great. <laughs> the 50 questions that you just asked me with one question mark at the end. Um, let me see how, <laughs> how I can go about this. So, um, Let's start with awareness, which is perhaps the densest piece of it. Uh, what do you do about poor cyber hygiene and bad practices with regard to password management and things like that for later? The, those are not small problems, and when they are problematic, they're impactful, um, but they're, they're less complex psychologically than the idea of awareness. So awareness itself is something that can be approached from a number of different perspectives. There's um, physical awareness, there's sensory awareness, there's emotional awareness, there's psychological awareness, there's awareness of self, there's awareness of others. All of those can be considered as distinct from one another in an abstract sense, but in the experience of living and being a, a social person in an organization, they all entwine. And it would be almost impossible to think of one or not think of another. You know, we're, we're sort of aware to varying degrees of different aspects of ourselves at different times. That being said, from a deep psychological and psychoanalytic perspective, there are enormous aspects of ourselves of which we are largely unaware at all times. That's what's considered unconscious. And the impact of that is potentially enormous. It's one of the things that behavioral economists will talk about as irrational, uh, by which they largely mean that you can't control it. And that's true. This is the real wildcard variable in managing people and their behavior or their misbehavior, that there are ways in which people will respond that deviate sometimes wildly from what you think would be expectable, um, but that's only from an external perspective. It's normal from the inside. It can't be accounted for in a sense until it comes. So when cybersecurity or InfoSec people are talking about awareness training, in some regards it's already a hobbled project because there's very little clarity or even definition with regard to awareness of what and in what ways are you going to train or educate or illuminate to be aware of what and toward what outcome and how will that be achievable. Primarily what people are talking about when they talk about awareness training or simply being more aware of you know, what you're doing and what the risks are in that is to mitigate bad behavior or to try to defend against mistakes, situational awareness, for example. But none of that, however well-intentioned and important, actually accounts for all of the things about a person of which she or he 
is intrinsically unaware. And that's where these programs get really tricky to operationalize. Yeah, and I'd like to add on, because if this is a hypothesis, and that is where the collaboration between again, right, and I came about, is that if this is a hypothesis about cybersecurity awareness and cybersecurity behavior, can we actually prove this out with some, I would say, kind of an experimentation, right? So I think that is what led us to actually look into, and can we get some data around this? Because one of the things I'm, I was saying was, we all know that texting and driving is wrong, that our planet is in trouble because of climate change and all those things. We are all aware of that. We also know that eating healthy is good for us, but does that reflect in our behaviors, right? So awareness is one thing, even though we are aware, is it going to reflect in your behavior? And that is what we wanted to test. If I give awareness to a lot of people are on cybersecurity. Will it be reflected in the actual behavior when the time comes, whether it's phishing or social engineering? So that is that is what we wanted to actually prove with data, whether from a cybersecurity awareness program perspective, now that I have an enterprise that is fully aware of how people fish, what is phishing, what is social engineering, when the time comes, whether that actually is going to be reflected in the behavior. That is what we wanted to actually test out. Oh, that's fantastic. And go actually let, let me ask you a question about that. You know, this is this is probably one of the most challenging areas that we face in security. It feels like it's a problem that, that hasn't been cracked yet. And geez, in honor of Alexander calling in from uh, New York, you know, I'll, I'll just share a, a story from uh from when I lived there, and my wife and I had uh, had moved there. I'm originally from the Bahamas, and I remember it was completely iced over. You know, very unfamiliar territory for me. You know, it's it's cold when it's 75 uh, from my uh, my background, and so you know we're walking. I've got three layers of clothes on, a scarf, a hat, you know, everything. And my wife is ahead of me, walking down the road. And I've got my hands in my pocket, and obviously uh, because it's it's freezing outside, and so it's uh, you know seemed to me to make the most sense of what to do. And she turns around and yells at me, "Take your hands out of your pocket!" And you know it seemed like the most ridiculous piece of advice I've ever heard in my entire life. You know, my hands will freeze off. I will have no hands anymore. These are the kinds of thought processes that went through my mind. And I was continuing to think about this when I stepped on a piece of ice and then slipped and fell. And because my hands were in my pocket, I couldn't get them out fast enough to break my fall. So now now I never keep them in my pocket, but it took, you know, a near concussion to make that happen. And I'm just curious, you know, as you go and apply this to a large organization, how do you think about the action piece of it? And to your point, how people will in the moment make a different decision when they don't have a sort of visceral feel for it? I love that story, and uh, I love your wife. <laughs> uh, <laughs> She's great. I love her, too. 
in her attempt to protect you, it's, it's such a great example of sort of you as organization uh, walking through, you know, the, the icy streets of cyber threats and not quite knowing exactly what to do, but following your instincts to try to stay safe. Um, so just as a question to you, how do you think you might have responded if instead of just directing you to what not to do, if she had articulated what she saw as the upcoming risk to you from your behavior and said, you might slip and fall and you need your hands to protect yourself from the impact, take them out of your pocket. Do you think you might have listened to her even though your hands were cold? That's a, that's a great question. I think the chances of me listening to her would have been way higher. That's for sure. I think I'd have to bring myself back into that moment to know exactly what I'll do. But yes, I think I would, I would definitely be more disposed to do it for sure. Right. So this is a part of my approach to the intersection of the conceptual and the pragmatic when it comes to working with organizational leaders like Opal, who are trying to put online very complicated, very dense, sophisticated issues that actually need to be able to translate into demonstrable changes that are data-driven. Uh, and so if you only tell people what not to do, not only do they not do that, but they don't know what to do. So it's very important to be able to start communicating richly all of the different issues and to bring people into your thinking about why things are problematic and why you want something to happen in A way and not B way and to be able to provide some options for people to be able to access in real time because otherwise in stressor moments, whether they're the victim of a fishing expedition or other kind of social engineering or something else is going on, they're going to fly by what is deeply established in their internal system. And it may absolutely contraindicate whatever your policies and procedures are. Yeah, I think from our experiment, I'm calling this an experiment at Alexander State because this is uncharted territory, right? So we are we're talking about a CISO and a human specialist going deeper into the problem and looking at the root cause of what is causing a human to click on a link or fall for a social engineering call, right? So this fascinating information that's coming out of our experiment, that it's not only awareness, so awareness is one thing, and then you have the behavior. And as Alexander said, the behavior is not binary. One of the things that when somebody is actually clicking on the link, they know we have information, we have trained them not to click on that, but they do actually click. And one of the interesting facts that coming out is that they don't want to put the organization at risk, but what's actually happening is the bad guys are using two well-known tools that is fundamental to human nature, distraction and deception. And the human is actually, the employees or the people who are falling for this, there is something happening in their life, right? So there's the stress that goes beyond just that moment they're clicking on this or they're falling for that social engineering scam, right? There is other things that's happening in their life that culminates into them making a wrong 
an erroneous decision, right? And so we have data that while you can have awareness, while we know that a user or an employee will do, has the intention to do the right thing, some of the things that is driving them to actually do an erroneous decision-making just in time is actually the root cause of the problems that we are seeing. I love the collaboration between the two of you and the, the work that you've done in Alexander, how your research is impacting the, the programs at, at AAA and such. And it's also, it makes me think of our closing keynote at RSA conference with, with Penn and Teller. So some, you know, some classic magic and the application into our industry with, again, the distraction, deception and manipulation you guys were talking about. So Alexander, I'd love to dig a little bit more into this. Um, given the role that human psychology plays in changing behavior, um, is there any role for technology in that detection and the reduction of, of the distraction that it sounds like is so effective with social engineering attacks? The simple answer, of course, is yes. Semicolon, there's a lot more to it. And I think it's incredibly important for everyone in society to rescale their expectations for what technology not only can do, but in some respects, importantly, what it should do. We have a tendency to outsource responsibility for a lot of things to tools or to ideas or even to, you know, deities or other things that we have faith in. And we do so for lots of reasons, and technology is one of the latest totems uh, that we've enlisted uh, that we really ought to be able to do for ourselves. Um, so there are, are so many limitations to technological capabilities with regard to, for example, understanding meaning or picking up on intentionality or many other aspects of human experience which go far beyond cognitive processes. So, you know, the idea of neural networks, for example, vastly accelerates the volume and pace at which all kinds of things can be analyzed, but it is absolutely rudimentary in comparison to what humans do when we think, which goes far past mere cognition. So you have to bring in the emotional, or to use the technical term, the affective realm. And one of the most extraordinarily central elements in processing the world around us is embodiment. We are living organisms, and how we live in the world and our subjective experience of being a self and how we have been treated and how we learned and what we didn't learn and why and all of the different myriad clusters of influences that we have had all contribute to how we think and how we operate. And all of these come into play at lightning speed at inflection points of decision-making. And those are not reducible to algorithms, perhaps one day they might be, but ultimately I would say that, that would be an approximation or a simulacrum. It will not be human or even human-like. It will be a different form of decision-making. Let's not even talk about it as intelligence. But in any case, what, what can we do now? How can technology help us? One way, I think, is to return to the idea of technology as a tool 
that can serve us rather than to rely on technology or look to technology as something that should be doing something that we can't do. And if I have to add to that, as a technologist myself, I absolutely agree with Alexander. These are two early days, and there's limitations to technology in understanding intentionality and all those things. But we're seeing some great successes in detection of distraction and manipulations. I'll give you a couple of examples where we are exploring. We're on the fringes, right? And I think we are exploring the possibilities where technology can drive us to solve some of these complex problems. So if you watch the Cambridge Analytica Netflix video called Great Hack, I mean, there's no mounting evidence that using technology and leveraging the confirmation bias, cognitive biases, manipulation, technology can drive human manipulation sitting from somewhere in the world, right? It doesn't have to be here, right? You don't have to be a con artist uh, talking to somebody. So that is one great example of how technology is being used to manipulate elections, <laughs> to be specific. We are also doing a proof of concept and looking at technology. Can I detect distraction while driving? So using the camera right on the front and the back onto the road, there's some interesting technology using AI and looking at the human eyes and looking at small variations in uh, things. We are seeing some really good detection technologies of if a driver is distracted and can cause problem because it's looking both at the friend and at the driver and can actually intervene. So what we are, from a technology perspective, we are looking at can technology detect distraction and then what should be the intervention? Should the technology intervene to do something? Those are some of the fringe areas that I'm interested in and I'm working with. So it looks like I was talking to Vivian Ming and she was saying just tracking the eyeball moment of a human can actually have a high level of confidence that somebody is distracted because if you're really focused right on something, you are going to be fixated, your eyes are going to be fixated on this. But if you're really distracted, she was saying that you can get to a fairly good approximation that this person is distracted. So we are very early days where technology can actually start detection and manipulations. So we're getting into a very interesting time on this topic. So, so if I can return to the idea of unintended consequences, um, what Gopal is mentioning is very important, and I'm in entire agreement with him with regard to uh, what technology is capable of doing and how that can assist us. However, the consequences of looking to the leading edge of that kind of capability to do something which it can't yet do and perhaps which we might not actually want it to do as it may impinge on the dignity and the privacy of our internal lives is, you know, the question of, well, why are you being distracted and what's going on in your mind that that's happening? And in many instances, for example, in driving or in other moments that may occur uh, at slower speeds, sitting at a desk or in front of a computer working for an organization, that kind of technological intervention could be critical in making the difference between a mistake and safety. But when we look to 
technology to be an agent of thought and to, in an unsupervised way, step in and say, you know, you can do this or you can't do that without understanding why we're doing things, then it gets into the realm of problematic unintended consequences. And, and I think that the technology world and the human world will interface much more harmoniously if we can rescale what the project of technology is for us. Absolutely. And I think that is where the collaboration between a human psychologist and a CISO, because I'm trying to prevent a harm being done, right? So whether it's, you know, driving or whether it's cybersecurity, right? Because that error can be extremely expensive and can put an organization at harm. So I think that is where we are really focusing on beyond that, am I now acting like a god, right? Can technology act like a god? I'm totally against that, but we are looking at a very specific use case. Can technology be used to prevent human harm or organizational harm? And that is something very important for our listeners to understand. We are not trying to be gods here. I don't want to be a god here, right? Or technologists, right? So we are our intention is to prevent harm for an individual or an organization because if the organization is harmed, it affects everybody working in that organization, right? So that is, that's a very specific focus that we both are looking into collaborating on. I, I love this work and I love this collaboration. And I thank you both for being a part of this podcast. There will be a follow-up blog uh, that our guests will be publishing. And I'm looking forward to reading it personally and would also love to extend the invitation to both of you to come back and join us on this podcast. There's, oh my gosh, there's so much that we could get into on this topic. It's such a ritual. So really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Britta, and thanks to our listeners. Look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, and we are honored to be a guest on this podcast. Thank you so much. Yes, a pleasure.